Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We've done absolutely everything, everything possible to resolve this problem peacefully. But a new scenario has been unleashed, and peace initiatives have been completely subverted by lies and hypocrisy. Good morning, everyone. I'm Poppy Harlow. Sarah Seidner is with me again here in New York. Good to have you. Nice to Thank be here. Thank you for getting up early for us. A big day. Also, Don will be back with us tomorrow. Caitlin is anchoring live in Poland. Good morning, Caitlin. Good morning. And here we have been watching a speech that President Putin just finished, a fiery response after President Biden's surprise trip to Kiev yesterday. Putin's warning to America and the West overall as Russia's invasion of Ukraine is nearing that one year grim milestone. President Biden is preparing to deliver his own dueling speech here in Poland in just a matter of hours from now. Plus, families complaining of rashes, headaches and nausea. But are the symptoms actually linked to that toxic train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio. The head of the EPA is returning to East Palestine as the feds try to figure all this out. And an arrest in the death of a Los Angeles Catholic bishop who was beloved. Who is the man in custody and what's his connection to the church leader? That's coming up. But we do begin with the showdown on the world stage. Quite a morning already. Uh, Vladimir Putin and President Biden delivering dueling speeches this morning as we approach the one-year mark of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. Vladimirovich Putin. We just heard Putin address the nation in Moscow. He condemned the United States and NATO countries for supplying weapons to the Ukrainians. He described them as, quote, terrorists, and he accused the West of starting the war. We have to continue to make sure that the threat to our lands is removed. The elite of the West do not conceal their ambitions, which is to strategically defeat Russia, finish us off once and for all. Putin signaling there is no end to the war anytime soon. And hours from now, President Biden is slated to give his own speech here in Poland after that surprise trip to Kiev yesterday, the middle of a war zone with no U.S. forces on the ground. Later this hour, he is scheduled to arrive at the presidential palace here in Warsaw to meet with Polish President Duda. All of this is coming at a critical and symbolic moment. The Ukrainians are begging for more and more weapons as the bloody conflict is dragging on with no end in sight. The big question right now that everyone here has, from Poland to Washington, is how long until the American public and European allies grow weary about sending billions of dollars worth of aid to Ukraine? CNN's Clarissa Ward is standing by live in Kyiv. But first this morning, we want to get to Fred Plykin, who is in Moscow, where President Putin has just finished that address. Uh, Fred, I know that Putin often saves, you know, his any announcements or news for the end of these speeches. What stood out to you? 
Yeah, there certainly was the one announcement at the end of the speech. First of all, you're absolutely right, Caitlin. It was a very long speech that Vladimir Putin gave. And I would say that it was sort of uh, subdivided into, into three different phases, where on the one hand, he said that Russia tried to do everything to prevent this war. However, it was, as he put it, the regime in Kiev that kept attacking Donbass. But I think one of the other important things that he said or kept saying uh, is that he tried to make this into a conflict between Russia and the West, Russia, the U.S., and the U.S. rather than Russia and Ukraine, because it was clear to see that he doesn't even consider Ukraine to actually be a state. One of the other things that he also pointed out was the resilience, as he put it, of the Russian economy in the face of all this, obviously trying to portray that Russia is still going strong. But he did keep um, really the biggest announcement uh, for, for the last part of it, uh, uh, saying that Russia is going to suspend its participation in the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Obviously, that is something that is pretty major. Both the U.S. and Russia have been trying to extend that treaty. It runs till 2026. It obviously sets caps uh, on the amount of nuclear warheads and nuclear weapons that both countries are verifiably allowed to deploy. And I think one of the interesting things uh, that we heard from Vladimir Putin is he said that he believes that the risk of allowing, for instance, U.S. inspectors or other inspectors onto their bases is that he's afraid they could get attacked by drones from Ukraine. So obviously likening that to the war in Ukraine as well. That was the sort of big major announcement. But really on the whole, you could see Russia absolutely not willing to back down in any way, shape or form. Instead, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, really trying to mobilize Russians for a protracted special military operation, as he uh, calls it, obviously the war in Ukraine, Caitlin. So, Fred, he, he said he is suspending Russia's participation. That doesn't sound like he's saying they're fully mm. pulling out. You know, what what are the implications of this? Why is he doing it? Is it because the U.S. wants to come in and inspect these military options in Ukraine? What, what or in Russia? Excuse me. What's the what's the situation here? Yeah, that was that was one of the reasons that was given. But there were various reasons that were given. On the one hand, he said, look, right now we have these sites in Russia. He doesn't believe that they should be inspected by the U.S. or by any sort of other outside entity, because he obviously believes that that is something that could be detrimental to Russia in their campaign in Ukraine. He was specifically speaking about those places getting attacked. He then went on to say, uh, look, it's one thing about uh, having something to do with the United States, uh, having an agreement with the United States. But what about France and the United Kingdom? They have nuclear weapons as well. And obviously, he sees himself in a major conflict with the uh, collective West, uh, as he as he kept putting it. So he's saying, and, and he made clear uh, to, to say this twice, that they are suspending their participation, but they're not going out of the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty altogether at this point in time. He did, however, say that uh, if the United States decides to develop or further develop any nuclear weapons, that Russia would then obviously do the same as well. So there is a clear warning in all of this. It is a pretty big decision on the part of Vladimir Putin to make, but certainly not one that he couldn't walk back from. Uh, thank you to Fred there. You told us that that was going to happen, and that's exactly what happened in the speech. Uh, President Putin not backing down, in fact, being more aggressive. Uh, let's go now to Clarissa Ward, uh, who is in Ukraine for us in Kyiv. Um, obviously, this speech was had, and I'm sure it was being watched by uh, the leadership there in Ukraine. What are you hearing from them? 
Sarah, we've we've only heard reaction from one senior advisor to the presidency, Mikhailo Podolyak, but I'm sure it reflects the general thinking and the leadership here. He said, quote, Putin demonstrated irrelevance and confusion because everywhere there are Nazis, Martians and conspiracy theories, really referring there to this kind of alternate reality that Putin appears to be presenting. Uh, he accused the Ukrainian government of being responsible for destroying the economy, destroying the lives of its citizens. He accused them of being responsible for starting the war. He accused them of paying more attention to the interests of the West than to the interests of their own Ukrainian people, really reflecting a, a sort of startling take on the actual events that we have seen transpire on the ground in the last year. He said, quote, talking about the Ukrainian government again, they unleashed the war and we continue to use force to stop it. This kind of thinking, this sort of alternative reality, I think really underscores why it is that the Ukrainian government has shown such reluctance to really sit down at the negotiating table with Vladimir Putin or with his emissaries and try to hash out some kind of a political situation. Because at this stage, it's clear that there's such a discrepancy in understanding and perspective on the war, and there's such a complete lack of respect uh, for truth and for facts that the Ukrainians just don't believe there's any prospect of being able to take Russia at its word, even if it were to offer a more conciliatory approach. So while you won't see most people here on the ground focusing too much on Putin's speech today, I do think it's fair to say uh, that the leadership will be offering as that this is classic evidence for why a political solution is just not feasible at the moment. And that is the problem with lies. Clarissa, thank you so much. When you hear stuff like that from Putin, uh, you can see why the Ukrainians say he's not dealing in reality. We're not going to deal with him. And we can't go to the negotiating That's table. Right. There is no negotiation to have. Caitlin. Yeah, it was quite a lengthy speech there from Putin. The White House, we should note, said President Biden likely was not watching it, but he will be updated on it. So for more on this, let's bring in CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger, who is also the White House and national security correspondent for The New York Times. David, so good to have you here in Poland with us. You were listening to Putin's speech, as I was, and you heard him say that they are suspending participation in that nuclear arms treaty. What does that say to you? Well, first, Caitlin, what a remarkable two days to have the president in Kiev yesterday, here today, and to hear Vladimir Putin a year into this with a narrative that still is living in sort of his own head here. I mean, as Jake Sullivan, the president's national security advisor, put it to us earlier today, if the Russians pulled out of the war today, the war would stop. If the Ukrainians pulled out of the war today, Ukraine would just be absorbed into, into Russia. Pushing back on what Putin has said, that this is because of the West, that That's this war right. is underway. That's right, that somehow the West, you know, was threatened. And New START fits into this. So New START is the last remaining treaty between, arms control treaty, between the United States and Russia. It covers the, the biggest weapons, the strategic weapons that go on ICBMs and that could hit the United States or other countries or that could hit Russia. And under that treaty, both sides are supposed to be able to inspect the other to make sure that they are complying with the number of uh, warheads that they can have, the deployment of, of strategic missiles and so forth. 
Those inspections haven't happened in the past few years, first because of COVID, and then because the Russians would not allow the inspectors back in. What he has done now is said, I'm done with participating in this inspection thing. What he didn't say was that he's going to build more weapons beyond the 1,550 that are, are allowed. Now, the whole treaty expires in early 2026. And one of the big questions is, is this a Vladimir Putin who's even interested in having a follow-on treaty? That's a worthwhile question. David, uh, you wrote last night that these vastly different worldviews that we're seeing on the world stage today between what Putin just said and what the president will say uh, shows, quote, echoes of exactly what President Biden wanted to avoid, a replay of the worst days of the Cold War. The difference, though, of course, is the China factor, right? Look at this one. That's right, Poppy. Um, the, uh, the China factor is a big element to this because in the Cold War, it was basically between the United States uh, and, and the Soviet Union. Now we have a much larger third player, and that makes this a lot more complicated. It's also a player on whom we are dependent for technology, for a lot of trade. Uh, we were never in the Cold War dependent on the Soviet Union for key technologies. Every Apple iPhone that you uh, pick up is made, or just about every one, is made in China. Think about that. Almost everything you see at Walmart or much of what you see is made in China. So this is a much more complicated dynamic. And that's why it's particularly important, Poppy, that we're seeing the top foreign affairs official in China in Moscow today meeting, uh, we think, with President Putin, certainly with other Russian officials, mm -hmm. while the president is here giving his speech. Well, Sarah, it was notable that just yesterday, President Zelensky told a German newspaper, essentially, if China does provide lethal aid to, uh, to Russia, Russia, we're going to have a world war. Right. And that is what has been the big concern here, because we're talking about nuclear powers now and world war. Um, I do want to ask you, uh, David, you talked about the importance of China. You talked about, you know, where Russia stands and how we, we are all connected, whether we like it or not. Um, I am wondering about what you think the possibilities are for Ukraine, assuming, let's say, that Ukraine ends up keeping its territory. Can they join the EU? Will they be given a position, for example, in NATO? Do you think that that is a possibility after all that has happened now uh, in this scenario? Well, there's a big argument, Sarah, about whether this would be a wise time to let uh, uh, Ukraine into NATO or not. Now, think about this. Ukraine is at war. If it became a member of NATO tomorrow, NATO would be obliged to enter that war directly. So far, it's been indirect. The United States, NATO countries have been providing arms. They've been providing intelligence. But they haven't been providing actual human forces. And President Biden has made it pretty clear that while he wants to support Ukraine, he does not want to risk World War III, as he puts it to his staff. And that means no direct conflict with the Russians. That would end if they entered uh, uh, NATO. Entering the EU would be a different thing. And you could make an argument that if you really wanted to support the rebuilding of Ukraine, you would bring them into the EU right away. We'll be watching to see what Biden says today about that. He's speaking just a few hundred feet away from where we are sitting now. David, uh, great analysis. Thank you for joining us for that. Thank with you. Your, with your reporting.
Thank you, Caitlin, there in Warsaw as well. Back here in the United States, a man is in custody this morning after a Catholic bishop was killed inside his own home. There is a connection between the man and the community leader that people loved. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's just heartbreaking to see what happened to him. I'm brokenhearted. I've been crying for the last two days knowing that he's no longer here to share all of his inspiration and his prayers and everything with us. You can hear the pain in her voice. That was a grieving parishioner talking about how the death of a Catholic bishop has affected her and her community. David O'Connell was shot and killed over the weekend at his home near Los Angeles. Authorities now have a man in custody and they say that the attacker knew him. The person of interest was identified as Carlos Medina. Medina is the husband of Bishop O'Connell's housekeeper. Let's now go to CNN's Josh Campbell, my friend who was live there in Los Angeles up in early this morning. Um, Josh, what more are, are you learning about what happened here? I know there are so many people that are heartbroken uh, that this bishop has been killed. Yeah, Sarah, good morning to you. You know, 65-year-old Carlos Medina was arrested yesterday by a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department tactical team after this hours-long standoff. And just to walk you through the timeline here, authorities say that Bishop David O'Connell, who was renowned for his work as a community peacemaker, was found dead Saturday in his home. A church deacon actually went to check on him after the bishop was late for a meeting. The sheriff says it was a tipster who helped them solve the case. That unidentified person told police that Medina had been acting strange and made comments about the bishop owing him money. Now, sheriff's detectives also were able to gather surveillance footage near the crime scene, which allegedly showed an SUV similar to Medina's pulling into the bishop's driveway and departing a short time later. L.A. Sheriff Robert Luna tells us that the motive right now is unclear. And although there have been reports of some type of financial dispute, Luna said his investigators have not yet drawn any conclusions. I'm not standing here in front of you telling you it's a dispute over money yet. It's something that we've heard uh, to this point, and that is something that the detectives will go out and validate and see if it's true or not. Based on what I know at this time, uh, the suspect uh, had been at the bishop's house before doing work. Uh, so there was some kind of a maybe a working relationship, but we're still trying to figure out what that relationship was. Now, Medina has not yet been charged, and CNN is attempting to identify whether he has an attorney. But this case is so puzzling, Sarah. You know, you and I have covered so many of these murder cases where you often hear from a family member or a neighbor saying, yeah, this was a troubled person. They had a criminal past. We're actually hearing from neighbors saying that they were actually stunned to hear that this person has been implicated in this murder. One neighbor telling our uh, colleagues, KCAL, our affiliate here in Los Angeles, that Medina was, quote, your average grandpa. So a lot of questions that remain uh, regarding him and as investigators work to piece together what happened here and why, community members and of all faiths here in L.A. and indeed across the country have been expressing anger and grief over the brutal killing of this beloved bishop, Sarah. It is really disturbing. Josh, you always have the best information. Thank you so much for joining us there from Los Angeles. Poppy. You bet. Thanks. The manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin and a movie set armorer have been downgraded. How this could impact their case. We are also live in East Palestine, Ohio this morning as a health clinic for residents affected by that train derailment is going to open up. Welcome back to CNN This Morning.
happening this morning. The nation's top environmental official is heading back to East Palestine, Ohio. This is 19 days after that toxic train derailment. And in just a few hours, a new health clinic will open there. People in the area have been reporting headaches and nausea, burning eyes, sore throats since that train full of toxic chemicals derailed earlier this month. Our Jason Carroll joins us live again this morning in East Palestine, Ohio, with more. Jason, what is that clinic going to be able to give folks and help them? Well, I think for some pop, it'll give them some peace of mind. Uh, it's scheduled to open at 8 a.m. again, just a few hours from now. Uh, folks will be able to come here at this church, which has been turned to a clinic. If they are still experiencing symptoms, they'll be able to get checked out by experts. Also, later today, uh, Ohio's governor, as well as the EPA administrator, will be giving us a briefing. Uh, state and local officials continue to say that the air and the water here is safe. And in fact, Poppy, yesterday, they released uh, new testing data, which shows that they've at this point tested 530 homes and all of those homes showed no contaminants above safe limits. Despite that, uh, there's been a lot of criticism uh, directed at uh, state and federal officials and about their response. Some of that directed at the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg. He spoke about that yesterday on a call with reporters. I am very interested in getting to know the residents of East Palestine, hearing from them about how they've been impacted and communicating with them about the state steps that we are taking. When the time is right, I do plan to visit East Palestine. I don't have a date for you right now. Yeah, a lot of criticism directed at him. Uh, some folks here in the ground, Poppy, say that uh, he should have had some face time with them already by now. Buttigieg has made it clear through tweets that he feels as though there's a need for Congress to get involved in terms of regulating uh, the train industry. So he has spoken about that in the past. But again, uh, folks here in the ground, he needs to be on the ground here speaking with them face to face. And Jason, Poppy. who will be on the ground is the AP EPA Administrator. Uh, Administrator Michael Regan, and this is his second visit, but there's so much mistrust that we've seen, you know, through your reporting from the folks on the ground there. What do they want the head of the EPA to assure them with? Well, that's actually, it's a very good point. And, and you're right. He was here last week uh, meeting with state and local officials and met with the resident as well. Uh, I think he will be uh, asked when he comes back here again today. Again, his plan is to do the same, meet with state officials, meet with local officials and meet with a resident as well. And again, I think what he's going to be asked and pushed on is the long term. Michael Regan made it clear last week when I spoke with him that he will be here. The EPA will be here as long as it takes. Yeah. People here want to be reassured of that. And I think Poppy. they want to know what the air quality is going to be in the future. Could this impact them five, yeah. ten years down the road? Look at, you know, what happened after 9-11 exactly. at ground zero. So, Jason, thank you very much. Sarah. Prosecutors have downgraded manslaughter charges against Alec Baldwin for the fatal shooting on the set of his film, Rust. He no longer faces a fire harm in firearm enhancement charge that would have carried a five-year prison sentence if he is convicted. But he still has two involuntary manslaughter charges and could get up to 18 months in prison. A live round from a prop gun killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins in October of 2021. Baldwin has maintained that he did not pull the trigger. Now, the same charge was dropped against the film's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. 
Let's go ahead now and uh, move over to Caitlin, who is in Poland for us for the last <laughs> few days with so much news you can barely contain yourself. Yeah, and the president is actually here today. I should note, you know, we were here yesterday. He was supposed to be here yesterday. He ended up making that surprise trip to Ukraine. He arrived here overnight. And obviously, he has very serious matters at hand here. This is where he was 11 months ago, right after the invasion had started. Now, with a war raging next door in Ukraine, there are massive concerns here. We've talked to people here teachers, bankers who have now signed up to train to defend their own country. It's remarkable because Poland has the lowest gun ownership per capita in Europe. We're going to tell you the stories of these people you see right here. That's next. Had you ever handled a gun before? No, <laughs> no. Welcome back. You can see Warsaw there. President Biden moments from now is going to meet with the Polish president, Duda, here in Warsaw. They're going to talk about support for Ukraine, bolstering NATO. Obviously, Poland has greatly felt the impact of Russia's invasion. Their defense forces have grown in numbers as well since Russia started invading its neighbor. And when we got here in Warsaw, we spoke with some of the newest Polish recruits about why they're signing up for Poland's version of the National Guard. Some of them have never held a gun in their life. They are teachers, farmers, bankers, and even an aspiring opera singer now volunteering for basic training in Warsaw. They are days away from graduating and becoming infantry personnel in the Territorial Defense Force, Poland's version of the U.S. National Guard. When Russia invaded Ukraine, and placed war on Poland's doorstep, the TDF saw a rise in recruits. Now, Poland's defense minister expects the volunteer group to reach 50,000 in the coming years. Awareness is the first step of preparedness. For Poland, the country with the lowest gun ownership per capita in Europe, the invasion became a national call to arms for people with day jobs. We slowly turn civilians into soldiers, we teach them the structures, we teach them how to wear the uniform, we teach them how to behave, we teach them where to salute, when to not salute. Mary, a 36-year-old mother of two, now finds herself balancing life as a banker on the battlefield. I'm very happy that I have this possibility to work and to be a soldier. 22-year-old Laura is an aspiring opera singer who joined the TDF in solidarity after being shocked by Russia's brutal invasion. Young people, we are shocked about that situation and we want to help the Ukraine. And had you ever handled a gun before? No, <laughs> no. Uh, when I came here, it was my first um, first connect with, with everything military. Did it surprise you? Uh, a little bit, yes, because it's heavy. Very heavy. <laughs> Laura's twin sister joined the TDF before her, and their mom has also just applied. Your mom is joining TDF? Yes. And you're in TDF? And your sister's in TDF? Yes. Laura, Mary, and the rest of the recruits undergo 16 days of basic training before graduating and then reporting once a month. What's very important about TDF is that in TDF you have to learn how to crawl before you walk. 
Putin's unprovoked war in Ukraine prompting civil readiness not seen in Europe for decades. Throughout a very short period of time, you see civilians turning into really amazing soldiers. Despite their differences, one thing unites the newest members of the Territorial Defense Forces. What is the one thing that you think they all have in common? Patriotism. Everybody you see behind you loves their country and in regardless of their background, social economic status, education level, employment, they all love Poland and they all want to serve with the flag on the shoulder. Patriotism is the common denominator. Patriotism is the common denominator. Sarah Pabi, it was just amazing. Yeah, it was just amazing to spend several hours with them. That was a great piece, Caitlin. Like, really, really great. It was great. I think it's something we never expected to see. And all of these people giving so much for the cause from all walks of life. It was fascinating. All right. Yeah, and you, as you guys oh. know, when uh, some, a story <laughs> like this, it, it's, it takes a team effort. Betsy and Clay and Antonio, we all were out there setting this up. It was really amazing to, to just see these everyday regular people who now have never held a gun mm-hmm. in their lives. And now they're signing up to defend their country because mm-hmm. of what Putin has done in Ukraine. Yeah. And I love that she's like, my mother signed up, too. Yeah. I'm like, Yes. Family affair. (laughs) Caitlin, that was great. We'll get back to you in just a minute. Ahead for us here, chronic pain and dementia. What a new study shows about a possible link. Elizabeth Cohen is standing by to explain. Welcome back. This morning, we're learning chronic pain from arthritis or uh, an old injury could actually aid your brain faster than normal. It may be linked also to cognitive decline in dementia. Our senior medical correspondent, Elizabeth Cohen, is here to explain. How? How? How can that be? It is really interesting, and I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news this morning, but did you know that our brains start to shrink in our 30s and 40s? That is, that was sort of a startling thing to hear. And what they did in this study was they looked at brain images from more than 19,000 people, and here's what they saw. If you take a look at the hippocampus, this is an area of the brain that deals with cognition, and they saw that not only did it shrink with age, which they expected, but it shrank even more more when people were in pain as they aged. They could actually see it in the scans that it shrank more if you were in pain and it shrank more if you had pain from more than one place, let's say your back and your knee. And then they gave these folks cognitive tests and here's what they found. They found that there were people who were given, they were given 11 cognitive tests and they found that if you had pain in one site, it's just like, let's say your back, you performed worse on one test. If you had pain in multiple tasks, if you had pain in more than one place, then you had pain in several different sites. So this really showed that pain is not good for you. You need to do what you need to do in order to address it as you age. This is completely freaking me out right now because I, got, <laughs> I, I should be mush right now. No, My brain, no I, because I have a lot of pain. I was an athlete. I played yeah. uh, volleyball for the University of Florida Go Gators. And sorry, <laughs> Sorry, had to. Um, and but but I know a lot of athletes, um, female and male athletes, yeah. who um, suffer from a lot of pain. Shoulders, knees are are usually the two that really yeah. get you. What do you do about it? Because you don't want to get hooked on pain pills, right? 
you you don't. But there are over-the-counter pills that you can take. You can also, their antidepressants actually are often used for pain or things like massage or acupuncture. There are things you can do other than, you know, prescription opioids. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. That was really eye-opening and terrifying at the same time. You're not, you're never going to be mush, my girl. Feels mushy. <laughs> okay, Caitlin, <laughs> back to you in Poland. <laughs> We're here over in Poland. President Biden is here in Warsaw. We are waiting for him any moment now to leave his hotel. He's going to be meeting with the Polish president uh, here. They've got a lot to discuss, obviously, following that speech from President Putin, President Biden's surprise trip to Ukraine. We're going to talk about the split screen of Biden's visit, Putin's address, all of that covered with Fred Plenkin, Clarissa Ward. We'll bring you all of the latest right after this. This is CNN's special live coverage of President Biden's trip to Poland. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Happening now here in Warsaw, President Biden is about to meet with Polish President Duda here at the presidential palace. As you see there, we are waiting on the U.S. president's arrival via his motorcade. This is the same place where last year you saw President Biden give that speech, where at the end he got the world's attention when he said Putin could not cannot remain in power. And now he's said to give another speech on the world stage condemning Putin as the Russian invasion of Ukraine is entering its second year. Putin delivered his own speech earlier this morning, a lengthy speech where he vowed to keep fighting and announced that he was suspending Russian participation in a nuclear weapons treaty with the United States, a significant announcement from the Russian president. We're joined now by former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, CNN military analyst Spider Marks, CNN contributor Jill Doherty. So we have got essentially everything covered here. Ambassador, I'd like to start with you, though, on what your takeaways were from Putin's speech. And if you think you'll, we will see Biden directly respond to that when he himself speaks in just a few hours from now. Shekhan, I'm sure that uh, President Biden uh, has a strong message to give. Um, it is not directed at uh, President Putin, but President Putin will hear him. President Biden's message is going to be, we're supporting Ukraine against this invasion from the Russians, uh, and it will continue. It will continue as long as it takes, and I hope he says as long as it takes until victory. That'll be the message for President Putin directly. Jill Doherty, you have covered uh, President Putin for, what, 20 years plus? And I, and I wonder uh, if you heard anything different from him this morning than you expected. You know, I wouldn't say it was very different. I mean, all of the, the criticism of the West was exactly what he said, kind of in one place. You know, they're disgusting. He was word cheating, hypocritical, disgusting. But I think what, what I, I did pull away from it is that the, he is bringing Russia back to the Soviet days. And what I mean by that is that he is bringing his society back. Everything that he described was uh, government control and government help for industry. Uh, young people need possibilities for some government programs. It was very much a Soviet idea. 
there was even one moment, you know, where he said, uh, we're producing X number of tons of grain. And I thought I was back in like 1985. So I think it's, it's a sad commentary because right now, Putin, every problem that he talked about domestically is a problem that he has created because of this war in Ukraine. So uh, the news, of course, is the new START agreement, and that's very disturbing because it, it not only uh, suspends their participation right now, but it raises questions about where we are going. Will there be another type of arms control agreement or not? I think Putin showed his by this speech. Jill, you're, you're, you are uh, breaking up just a tiny bit. We got um, 99% of what you said, and you're always on the mark. You have been covering this for so long. I want to uh, move now to CNN military analyst uh, Spider Marks. Um, I'm curious what you think it means. We know that, that Putin has not been following the rules um, of this treaty. Uh, but for him to state it out loud like this, is that an escalation uh, uh, somehow? Well, he's made it very clear that he has nukes, which is certainly no mystery, right? I mean, all along he has said, you're going to have consequences if you push too hard, which is really unnecessary. We know what the capabilities are of the Russian military, the nuclear capabilities. And going back to Jill's point, which I think is absolutely spot on, is you see this, this movement, this recidivist behavior, if you will, of Putin, where he's trying to recreate something that's been gone for 30 years. And when you look at it, you realize that this Russian military that he has put in the field to go against the Ukrainians has demonstrated itself to be an abject failure from top to bottom. It's a corrupt military. It's leaderless. It has no competence at any level. And every time it engages with the Ukrainians, it loses quite considerably. But what we need to be, we need to take this very seriously because the law of large numbers applies here. Russia, three times the population of Ukraine, can continue to conscript young men, put them into combat without the necessary training, obviously, and put this in, into this meat grinder. But that is the intent that we see from Moscow right now, which is to try to wear down not only Kyiv, but also to try to wear down the NATO alliance. And Ambassador Taylor, I'm here in Warsaw, and obviously Poland has been a very vocal advocate for giving Ukraine what it needs. There's actually a protest outside where President Biden's motorcade is going to go by this morning that says, send Ukraine the F-16. That is uh, something that the White House has so far resisted doing. They have said there's no plans to even train Ukrainians on fighter jets, this idea that was raised of training them in advance in case they do decide to give them to them. What do you make of that? Caitlin, uh, this is a trend. I mean, we see the United States thinking about providing weapons um, to Ukraine. They think about, for example, providing stingers, anti-aircraft. Um, and that was uh, decided. They finally decided to do that. Um, and now we're all the way up to Patriot missiles, the most advanced anti-aircraft that we've got. Same thing uh, on, on the tanks. Uh, that is, we provided them javelins. First, we didn't provide them javelins. Then we decided we would. Um, and now it's all the way up to HIMARS, these very advanced weapons, these rockets. So the trend is clear. Um, my bet is that this discussion within the administration, within the NATO alliance, will soon lead to the decision to provide those F-16s as those polls are asking. That's, that's a really interesting perspective. Well, go ahead, Caitlin. 
No, I was just, I think there's a little bit of delay. I was just saying that's remarkable. He does think that they're going to ultimately send the F-16s. Yeah, 100%. I was going to bring Clarissa Ward. I think we have Clarissa Ward, right? And so, Clarissa, just your response to that hearing now, what, 24 hours after President Biden was on the ground in Kiev, knowing that that is what Zelensky wants is those F-16s and longer range missiles. Is it the belief of the people of Kiev and Ukraine that 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 will ultimately come from the West? I wouldn't say it's the belief yet. It's definitely the fervent hope. And I think that yesterday's visit from President Biden kind of uh, stoked those dreams even further, particularly Mm -hmm. when you heard some slightly cryptic comments coming from the chief of staff of the presidency, Andrei Yermak, who said that uh, some issues had been resolved and some things that were stuck would now be sped up. It wasn't clear exactly what he was alluding to there. But certainly when you talk to ordinary Ukrainians, uh, the hope very much is that they could be talking about F-16s, that they could be talking about the kind of long range missiles and artillery that they have been asking for. Because Ukraine is sort of looking down the barrel right now at what promises to be a deeply unpleasant spring after a very grim winter with uh, some kind of a large-scale offensive, although we don't know exactly what that will look like, and there is some speculation as to how uh, the Russians are actually what kind of ability they have to launch that kind of an offensive. But Ukraine uh, understands militarily that if outright victory is the goal, what they have as the status quo will not be enough to achieve that objective. So for them, they really view this as kind of an existential moment. We need this more sophisticated weaponry if we're going to finish this off or else this conflict really risks sort of devolving into a protracted stalemate war of attrition with many more lives lost on both sides and with Vladimir Putin ultimately trying to use that protracted conflict to create fissures in the West uh, among those who support Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And just to catch everyone up to speed, we are standing by here in Warsaw, waiting for President Biden to arrive at the presidential palace. He's going to be meeting with Polish President Duda, who has played a fundamental role since Russia invaded Ukraine in the response, not only the humanitarian response, but also when it comes to weapons and military. This place that you're looking at right now, the presidential palace, this is the same location where President Biden gave a speech last year, one month into Russia's invasion of Ukraine. He gave a speech talking about what he believed the broader implications of the invasion meant, not just for Ukraine, not just for Russia, not just for Eastern Europe, but really for the entire world. But it was a moment at the end of the speech that President Biden, a comment he made that really got everyone's attention. This was the moment. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light, of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. It was a moment that captured headlines worldwide. Ambassador Taylor, you watched that moment as well. You know just as well as I do. You know The White House had to come out after and say they were not calling for regime change. The president said he did not have any regrets about that comment. I wonder what you're going to be listening for President Biden to say today in this, these remarks and in this speech. 
Kate and I imagine that uh, he will be very clear uh, about the U.S. goal. Um, and the U.S. goal is to defeat the Russians um, and for a Ukrainian victory. Um, he will also put this in a broader context. He will be able to say and describe how important this is for all of us. It's important for Ukraine, it's important for Europe, it's important for the United States that, that the Ukrainians win. Joe, one of the things we heard uh, from President Putin's remarks today also is a defense of the economy, because that has been a real question mark. I mean, we've seen what has happened to the Russian economy as a result. And he tried to make it appear otherwise, that the Russian economy has not suffered the way that we've actually seen it suffer on the world stage. Obviously, it's been propped up by some other uh, players. Yeah. Sarah mentioned India and China, of course. But what's the reality when it comes to the Russian economy and the impact on the Russian people? Well, it has been affected. Now, they've been able to uh, overcome some of the dangers for the economy. But I think one really telling moment, and he went on at length about this, was the effect of the war and uh, the body bags coming back from Russia. And so uh, President Putin said, we're going to create a foundation, a national foundation that will help the families. Because, as you said, you know, I, I really feel... Almost feel their pain. He said it's tangible, and we have to help them. And so, what this says to me is he is obviously under pressure from the Russian people because of the people who are dying, their family members who are dying. And so, this foundation is being created. Um, I would say also, you know, he talked really about class warfare. He mentioned people who have uh, Russians who have put their money, invested their money in the West. And he said, uh, no ordinary Russian would have any pity for anyone who lost their yachts due to the sanctions. So, again, what he was what he was trying to um, say he was going to do was actually a reflection of the problems that he has right now. And you can see the personal problems of Russians right now creeping through in this speech really, really interesting. The things he says he's going to try to fix are actually the things um, that are hurting the country right now, but he doesn't want to put it in those terms. Um, we are going to come back to this amazing panel, the, our brain trust. Uh, and uh, But first, we're going to go to Fred Pleitkin, who is in Russia. Um, and at this point, are we hearing any reaction from, from Moscow? Hi there, Sarah. Well, there certainly has been a, a lot of reaction, um, first of all, to President Biden's visit uh, in Ukraine. We've heard some of that uh, from Dmitry Peskov earlier today. And just a couple of minutes ago, I actually got uh, a press release from the Russian Foreign Ministry that they have now summoned the U.S. ambassador to Moscow here to, uh, in a protest note against the U.S.'s involvement in Ukraine. I just want to read some of it to you uh, really quickly because all of, all of this obviously moving very quickly. We had Vladimir Putin's speech. We have this now. One of the things they said is uh, they say in connection with the growing involvement of the United States in hostilities on the side of the Kiev regime. Of course, we heard in Vladimir Putin's uh, address earlier today, him uh, constantly calling the government in Kiev, the Kiev regime, also saying that he believes that the authorities in Kiev are alien to the actual Ukrainian people. That's something that the Russians have actually been spreading uh, a lot. Uh, and they then go on to say, and I think this is quite Im important, they say that this clearly proves the inconsistency, inconsistency and 
falsity of the statements of the American side that the United States is not a part of the conflict. So the Russians are saying they believe that the United States is indeed involved in this war. And that's certainly one thing that Putin also made clear, that he believed that this was essentially Russia against the West. I want to listen into some of what Vladimir Putin had to say. The elite of the West uh, does not conceal their ambitions, which is to strategically defeat Russia. What does that mean? It means to finish us off once and for all and to make local they do that by making local uh, conflicts into much wider and bigger ones. So obviously a very long speech by Vladimir Putin. There's a couple of things that I also picked up on, which I actually thought was quite interesting. Vladimir Putin obviously repeatedly saying that Russia will persevere, that Russia will continue. One of the things we didn't hear from Vladimir Putin today is how he thinks things are actually going for the Russians on the battlefield, because mm. obviously we know that has been very difficult. And of course, as far as the new START treaty is concerned as well, I found it quite interesting that he said that uh, Russia is afraid that Russian bases could be struck by the Ukrainians. You'll recall, many people believe the Ukrainians managed to strike a base of the Russians inside Russia that had Russian strategic nuclear capable bombers on them last year, guys. Yeah, I think the Ukrainians could answer the question of how things are going for Russia and two words, not well. Uh, thank you so much, Fred. Uh, Caitlin? And when I was listening to President Putin's speech earlier today, he made this comment about long-range weapons. Obviously, that is what Zelensky has been seeking. It seemed to be the most specific that threat that we heard from Putin. And we're seeing here, I should note, that the president's motorcade, President Biden's motorcade, that is it right there. It is going down the streets of Warsaw. It's less than a 10-minute drive over here to where we are outside the presidential palace. That is where President Biden is going to be meeting with Polish President Duda. He'll, it'll be a formal greeting, as it was last year, when there are the gathered troops that they will inspect before going behind closed doors. We'll get a brief preview of what that meeting looks like before the two leaders will sit down face-to-face -to, -face to talk about the grave implications of, of what they of what they are seeing, how they are responding, what Poland would like to see. Obviously, this is a country that has felt the weight of this invasion. They have taken in over 9 million refugees that crossed through Poland's borders. About a million and a half, we believe, are still here actually in Poland. So that has been a huge aspect of it, as in addition to what we're talking about here with weapons and what that looks like. And Spider Marks, when you heard President Putin say... The longer range weapon systems, if they come to Ukraine, he says, quote, the further we will be forced to move the threat away from our borders. What is he saying there? What did you take away from that? Well, what I what I think he is saying is that if longer range weapons are being deployed by the Ukrainians, in other words, if NATO and the United States step up and then increase the capabilities, what I think Putin is indicating is that he understands he's now at risk in sanctuary. That is to say, across the border into Russia, he now has capabilities that he is using to move forces in where he stages forces, refits forces, prepares forces in sanctuary. Nobody's threatening him there. Then he moves them into Ukraine. What he's indicating is he may have to push those forces further back, which is exactly the type of effect you want to achieve in battle. You want to reach out as deep as you can and affect what is happening before it engages in that close combat. Thing is, you know, Caitlin made such a good point, pointing back to that March 2022 uh, address where uh, Biden went off script and said, you know, he cannot remain in power 
talking about Putin giving that address at the same place he will speak today. He also said uh, last year in October of 2022, Biden did say that he believes that Vladimir Putin is a rational actor. One year into this war, do you believe his position has changed? Poppy, is that a question for me? I'm sorry. It is. Well, it's for Bill yeah. Taylor, Ambassador Taylor. Sure. Yes. Um, I think President Putin is, is rational. Uh, rational people can make mistakes. Rational people can make bad decisions on bad information. Um, I don't think President Putin is crazy. I've not met this man, but a lot of people that I know have studied him for a long time. Um, they don't think he is suicidal or crazy. He makes bad decisions. And it's increasingly clear that the decision, the original decision to invade Ukraine was a blunder. And he's now, he's now a year in from this blunder. He's trying to get himself out of this blunder. He's doubling down on this blunder. And it's not going well for him, as we've said. I just want to note what we're seeing here. The, the motorcade has pulled up. We're, we're watching it from our balcony here, right by the presidential palace. We're watching reporters scrambling to get in to capture this arrival that you can see the Polish forces there. President Duda is right there waiting underneath the flags for President Biden to walk up for this meeting. It's remarkable what has changed and also what has not changed in the last 11 months since President Biden was here. And I also just think it's notable that he is here. He is not in Berlin. He is not in Paris. He is not in London. He has come here to Warsaw because Poland has played such a pivotal role in this. And that was not always a given. The relationship between the United States and Poland before this invasion uh, was there were concerns about Poland being on this rightward slide. There were concerns about the state media here, what that was looking like, their treatment uh, when it comes to human rights. So much has changed of that in just the last 12 months alone since Russia invaded Ukraine and the relationship of what Poland has done. Not only have they helped with the refugees, Sarah, you know that very well. You covered it uh, on the ground as those millions of refugees were coming through Poland. But also they have served as the logistics hub for so many of the weapons that we've seen going into Ukraine. I mean, they have helped get all of that when it was quite difficult at the beginning to get so many of those weapons across the border into Ukraine, Sarah and Poppy. Yeah, I can tell you just from the perspective of how the relationship has changed between the United States and Poland, because there were questions about human rights and certainly a slide uh, to the far right there, although that sort of happened in this country as well uh, and many countries in Europe. Um, but when it comes to the way in which Poland responded to the refugees, there was a moment when I was standing on the border um, in a town called Przemyśl, and then we went to the border with Ukraine. And as we watched people walk over, they were coming over with their children in tow, holding them with one suitcase often. And the way in which they were received when they got to the other side was nothing short of beautiful. I mean, people were crying because they, were, they came into open arms, People just randomly set up shop and started cooking for the refugees on the border right after they passed through. Um, and you saw that not just from the Polish government, but you saw that directly from the Polish people in a way I don't think I've ever seen it before with such numbers coming over. So it was a moment that really set the stage for how Poland was going to act towards Ukrainians and towards Ukraine. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Caitlin. Yeah, it did. And what the mayor of Warsaw, who we're going to have on the program later, has talked about is that they've taken them into their homes. You know, actually, we saw earlier 
those Polish people who have joined the Territorial Defense Forces, which is basically the U.S. version of the national, the Polish version of the U.S. National Guard, they were saying, we have friends in Ukraine. They came and stayed with us for weeks when the invasion happened. Either, you know, at the time they were afraid to return home. They weren't sure what was going to happen. Some of them have gone back. Some have gone to other places in Europe. But but they these are their neighbors. They feel very close to them. They have very similar cultures. Uh, and a lot of them came here to, they were taken into the schools, they began to work. I mean, it, it's really amazing the, the, the way that the Polish people welcomed so many of the Ukrainian refugees at a time of such crisis. And I think that's part of what you're going to see in this meeting today. I think it's part of the solidarity of President Biden and his aides want to underscore just how fundamental that alliance is. You can see President Duda there getting prepared to greet President Biden. A remarkable change in their relationship even as well, given what it was before Biden came into office as he was first in office. And now the fact that he has visited Poland twice within the span of a year, given major speeches here, as you see the beast roll into the presidential palace here in Warsaw. And there you hear part of the pomp and circumstance. You can hear um, the, the welcome uh, there uh, as the president is uh, of the United States is rolling in. It'll be really, really interesting to hear uh, what happens between these two men, especially after his trip to Ukraine. You can see the forces gathered there. It's a very formal greeting where President Biden knows arriving. He's about to step out of the beast. This is his first stop of the day after a very long day traveling in and out of Ukraine yesterday, a 10-hour train ride both ways. Duda actually greeted him near the border when he arrived. There's the handshake between the two leaders. Very happy greeting. You see them both um, laughing with each other and just having a, a quick chat. And I think there was some skepticism in the Biden administration when they first took office. President Duda had formed quite a close relationship with President Trump when he was in office. And they even joked about putting a Fort Trump base here in Poland. Now you see just how, two, how close the two of them have grown. That's President Biden greeting some of the top advisors to President Duda. One of them there, Marcin Teixe, you saw we had on the uh, program yesterday talking about what they would like to see happen next in the next several months and what their predictions are for Russia's continued invasion. After this, the two leaders will inspect the gathered troops who were there. That is part of a formal welcome for President Biden here in Poland. And then they will go inside behind closed doors. And that's where they will talk about what is going on, what President Biden heard from President Zelensky when he spent about six hours on the ground with him yesterday. Obviously, a lot of that has to do with weaponry and what they would like to see and whether or not they are going to send those longer range missiles to them, the F-16 fighter jets, as we noted as well. I think it's we shouldn't um, diminish the fact that, look, the reason why this relationship in part has come stronger between Biden and Duda is because there is a war on their doorstep. And if you are an ally of the United States with the, the, you know, the most powerful military in the world, you don't want to mess with that relationship, right? I think a major concern has been Poland's fear is if Russia was successful in Ukraine, Poland could be next. That is something they've warned about. You heard a, that's Jake Sullivan there, the national security advisor 
to President Biden, who was one of the very few people on hand with him in Kyiv yesterday. His other aides, Jen O'Malley Dillon, that he is greeting as he walks down the line. John Kirby, obviously Amanda Sloat, who we also had on yesterday from the National Security Council. But yeah, Sarah, to your point, I mean, that has been Poland's fear and Moldova's fear and all of Eastern Europe's fear is that they could see something similar. It's a really imminent, real threat for them when they talk about what this could look like and why they are so invested in what the outcome of this is going to be. Ambassador Taylor, let me bring you in here. We just heard the U.S. national anthem. Now we're going to see them walk inside President Duda, President Biden together. Uh, Caitlin mentioned Jake Sullivan, one of the few advisors who was with the president on the ground in Kiev today. And the reporting from our White House team, Kevin Liptak and Betsy Klein, is that Jake Sullivan also really set up what we'll hear from the president in a few hours, not as a sort of head-to-head -head with what we heard from President Putin this morning, but rather as something larger than a rebuttal to what Putin said, something that will be an affirmative statement of values. How important is that, knowing that this plan was made far before they knew uh, that President Putin was speaking today? Exactly. Um, President Biden needs to put a broader context, uh, tell the world, tell Europe, tell Ukraine, tell the Americans why it's so important. And so this is not a response to uh, President Putin. This is not a response to Putin's President Putin said that this is the United States and NATO's fault. Right. Um, and so he, President Biden, is going to make the case that this is a defense of Ukraine. It's a defense of Europe. It's a defense of democratic principles, of international principles, of universal principles, of sovereignty, um, of territorial integrity. He's going to make the broader case. President Biden is going to make the broader case of why it's so important for Poland and Europe and NATO and the United States to continue to support Ukraine in this fight. So he'll put a broader context on this. And you're seeing the two men now sort of walking by uh, the troops, inspecting the troops as, uh, as is uh, the norm to do in some a ceremony like this. A lot of pomp and circumstance, but there are some real heartfelt words that I think the Europe 
Poland in particular and Ukraine are expecting. And it'll be interesting to see how Russia also responds to what he says. Yeah. Um, we're going to go now to Jill Doherty, uh, who has been covering um, the, the Russian regime for uh, a very, very long time, it, certainly as long as Putin has been in power in some capacity. Um, Jill, what do you make of, you can see this relationship um, is one that is strong. Um, and do you think that, that Putin is, I, the word fear, he, do, he doesn't like that to be uh, part of his um, lexicon, but... Do you think that this gives him some sense of, like, I'm in trouble, even though he would never say it? You know, if you put yourself in Putin's place right now, uh, this morning he snarls against the, what he calls the collective West. And the, the collective West now includes the countries that used to be friendly with Russia and that used to be part of the Soviet Union and that were under the sway of the Soviet Union in Central Europe. And that's where the, President Biden is right now. So how the world has changed. I mean, who are Russia's friends right now? Today, we have the top foreign policy advisor for the Chinese government in Moscow. So Russia is reaching out to China, knowing that China is economically much more powerful than Russia. Then they have, you know, they're getting weapons from North Korea and from Iran. It, I really, the, the phrase that comes to mind is how the mighty have fallen, at least diplomatically. I mean, if their friends are the, um, you know, countries like North Korea and Iran, they're, they have problems. So what they're trying to do right now, Russia looks at this, realizes this is the powerful West. So it's, it's changing its message and looking for friends in developing countries. And that's why you hear Putin saying the elites of the West, the elites of the West trying to say that Russia doesn't have any elites, that Russia is part of, you know, the developing world. It's all, again, very Soviet, and it rings hollow. I mean, in the speech this morning, when I was listening to Putin, he, I mentioned, he said, well, you know, average Russians don't have any pity for rich Russians who have put their money abroad. Well, you know, the entire government of Putin is made up of rich people who have invested their money abroad and now are essentially being forced to bring it back. So getting back to the situation here in Poland, I think it's, it's ironic for Putin to be standing there and talking about, you know, the collective West, which he has helped to mold and to, to uh, pull into a force that is opposed to what he is doing in, uh, in Ukraine right now. Again, he brings many of these, these things upon himself by launching that war in Ukraine. <clears throat> And I just want to let everyone know, we are, we can see the presidential palace. This is inside the presidential palace where President Biden and President Duda are about to go inside. There's quite a crowd gathered outside as they are watching the military band play, watching the gathering of these troops, the inspection of them. We will see President Biden and President Duda once they sit down inside briefly. We'll see if they make any remarks there and obviously pay close attention to what they could potentially say. Spider Marks, I wonder... One thing you could weigh in on, uh, the fact that Poland has played such a critical role in actually convincing other nations to send bigger and more weapons to Ukraine, including the tanks specifically, I think is probably the most recent instance of where they've played a really big role in pushing other countries to say, yes, we will send them to Ukraine. 
Yeah, the United States and Poland have really created a very, very strong relationship. I think it's important to note also that the U.S. Army has pre-positioned and put a permanent presence, a three-star headquarters commanded forward by a one or a two-star in Poland, which means we are now moving our forces back into what used to be, as Jill pointed out, the former Soviet Union, which again makes Putin even increasing his being aggrieved, which he routinely is anyway. Um, and so this, this relationship with Poland is incredibly important for the United States. It's a forward presence, in a, and it's not a large headquarters, but it allows other forces to plug into that headquarters and to have the command and control relationship necessary to do, not necessarily fighting on the ground, but to do the training, the foreign internal defense, the type of those kinds of cooperative arrangements that are necessary for coalition forces, that is multiple nations joining together to train, to have commonality of purpose, and also to achieve increased readiness levels forward in this forward presence. Absolutely important relationship that the U.S. and Poland have right, has right now. Yeah, it's incredible the way that it's changed and what it looks like from Biden as a candidate warning about totalitarian regimes when he was talking about Poland to now this close embrace of President Duda, two visits in less than a year. Sarah Poppy, obviously, we're going to keep an eye on President Biden's meeting with Polish President Duda. They are behind closed doors now, so we'll keep an eye on what they say when they are in front of the cameras. Okay, thank you so much. Back here in the United States, we're watching a Supreme Court case, actually a series of cases being heard over the next two days that will really test the power of social media companies and their responsibility. A preview next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. In just a few hours, the Supreme Court will hear a case that could change how the Internet is regulated and the responsibility of social media giants. The justices will hear arguments over whether those tech companies can be sued civilly for promoting content posted by others. This is all about Section 230. Jessica Schneider, I think it's confusing for a lot of people. But this mm. case and this family, the petitioners really bring it home for folks. Yeah, they do. And they are putting the human spin on this poppy. But tech companies are really bracing for this showdown at the Supreme Court. This will be a first of its kind case. The justices will be deciding if the family of this American student killed in the 2015 Paris terror attacks can sue YouTube's parent company, Google, because of the algorithms it used that the family says promoted terrorist content online. We continue in this fight because we're seeking justice. The Gonzalez family's long legal fight started when their 23-year-old daughter, Noemi, was killed in Paris in 2015. Noemi Gonzalez was at a bistro when ISIS terrorists unleashed gunfire, part of a coordinated citywide attack of bombings and shootings that killed 129 people. She was the only American. It was a terrible, horrible moment in my life that I cannot describe. Mm. The pain. The Gonzalez family now wants YouTube and parent company Google to be held liable for Noemi's death. They've lost in the lower courts, but the Supreme Court agreed to hear their appeal. And their lawyers will now try to convince the nine justices that YouTube's algorithms promoted ISIS-affiliated videos to certain viewers. And that is how ISIS recruited and enlisted support. 
instead of terminating these videos, instead of eliminating them, instead of deleting them, they promoting them. But Google says they aren't responsible, given the broad protections of Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Congress passed the law in 1996 to shield Internet platforms from being sued for harmful content posted by third parties on their sites. Google argues its algorithms recommending content are what make it possible to find the needles in humanity's largest haystack, warning that if Section 230 does not apply to how websites sort content, the Internet would devolve into a disorganized mess and a litigation minefield. There's no evidence the Paris attackers were specifically radicalized on YouTube, but Noemi's parents still allege YouTube aided and abetted ISIS and should not be able to hide behind Section 230. They should stop it. They have the, the power to do it. This will be the first time the Supreme Court has considered the scope of Section 230 and the extent to which it protects social media companies. The push to reform Section 230 is widespread. Last month, President Biden penned an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal calling for modifications. And Republicans have repeatedly blasted big tech for what they call alleged censorship of conservative ideas. The Gonzalez family, though, just wants justice for the death of their daughter at the hands of ISIS-linked terrorists. Nothing is uh, going to give me back my daughter, but at least that is something good is going to be accomplished. And, you know, this isn't the only big case before the court. There will be another challenge heard tomorrow that will determine if social media companies can be held liable under an anti-terrorism law. That's Mm -hmm. a case that's actually separate from this Section 230 challenge. But, Poppy, it does have similarly potentially massive ramifications. So two big cases really testing the limits of social media. And, Jess, I, I wonder how likely you think it is the court comes down here, in their opinion, with a definitive decision on Section 230, because it was just a few years ago that Justice Thomas essentially said it behooves the court to take up a case to finally decide on this 1996 law, but they could find an off ramp as well and not fully decide. Yeah, several of the justices have talked about the need to really determine the scope of Section 230. The question is whether they step in or whether they determine this is actually Congress's lane and whether Congress should be in charge of reforming this this law. And that would be their off-ramp. Jess, thank you. Fascinating. We'll watch for the case tomorrow as well. Ahead for us, more people near the site of a toxic train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio, say they are having health problems. Today, the state is opening a health clinic to try to help them. And in Florida, an alligator has killed an elderly woman. We have all the details coming up next. That is terrifying. This is just awful. More tragedy in Turkey this morning. Powerful aftershocks have left at least six people dead and hundreds more injured. That is on top of the tens of thousands of people killed and injured. Rescue crews once again looking for survivors in the rubble two weeks after the deadliest earthquake in the region in Turkey and Syria's modern history. Our Jomana Kardashe is uh, live at the epicenter of the aftershocks. And I know you felt it. I I think you're in Adana um, now with that beautiful mosque. Um, Tell us what you can about this major aftershock and how large it was. 
Well, uh, Sarah, 6.3, really powerful aftershock that struck in and around the city of Antakya. And as you know very well, this is a city and an area in this earthquake zone that was uh, the hardest uh, hit by that massive earthquake a couple of weeks ago. And before that aftershock, it was really pretty impossible to find a building in that area that hadn't been impacted by the earthquake. So when you have that powerful 6.3 magnitude aftershock, a lot of buildings collapsed. And as you mentioned, at least six people have been confirmed killed, hundreds were injured, some of them in critical condition. And then the search and rescue operations that had really shifted into search and recovery. Uh, last night we saw these search and rescue operations resume. We were at the site of one of those buildings where you had these exhausted rescue and medical crews working for hours and hours to try and uh, save three people who had been trapped underneath the rubble of that building. Unfortunately, they did not make it out um, alive. And Sarah, you can imagine the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people across this earthquake zone who have lost their loved ones, lost their homes, lost everything in seconds, made homeless by that 7.8 earthquake a couple of weeks ago, they were just starting to try and comprehend what they had gone through, trying to deal with the trauma of that earthquake and that loss that came with it. And then you had that uh, massive 6.3 aftershock last night. And you can imagine what those families, many of them living right now in makeshift uh, shelters and tents in the back of their cars, the kind of fear that they were living through last night, reliving that trauma, Sarah. Jamana, such powerful reporting from you throughout this time. Thank you so much for being there and sharing their stories. It is absolutely horrific what has happened in Turkey and Syria because of these quakes and now this aftershock with more death. I just, I, I can barely take it. You were just there. I was. And thinking about all of the people that you were with and yeah. what they're still going through. Yeah. There, there were families just sitting outside of rubble, waiting in the freezing cold um, for their loved ones to be pulled out. And they, they haven't found them yet. So. Our thanks to Jamana for that reporting. This morning, the EPA Administrator Michael Regan is returning to East Palestine, Ohio, after a train full of toxic chemicals derailed there earlier this month. This visit comes as skepticism and anxiety spread in the town of 5,000 people. People in that area have been reporting headaches and nausea, burning eyes and sore throats ever since this disaster. You're looking at now live pictures of that is a new health clinic that is set to open there today. Uh, they will have registered nurses, mental health specialists, also a toxicologist. Many officials, including the Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, have demanded accountability and greater safety regulations. Uh, Buttigieg has also come under some criticism for his response. He also said he's planning a visit. It's not clear when. Listen to what he told reporters yesterday. I am very interested in getting to know the residents of East Palestine, hearing from them about how they've been impacted and communicating with them about the state steps that we are taking. When the time is right, I do plan to visit East Palestine. I don't have a date for you right now. And in Florida this morning, this is kind of everybody's nightmare who lives there. Wildlife officials say the 11-foot alligator removed from this neighborhood pond. Look at that sucker. Killed an elderly woman while she was doing what we dog lovers love to do, taking her dog for a walk. Let's go to CNN's Leila Santiago in Miami. What are authorities saying uh, about what happened here? 
Well, let's 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 talk about sort of the sequence of events. What led up to this? We do know, as you said, Sarah, this was an 85 year old woman walking her dog in a community that was 455 and up. A 911 call came in reporting that alligator bite. And when authorities got out there, it was too late for the woman. Now, the dog is said to have survived. We're still waiting to find out exactly what kind of condition that dog is in this morning. But you said it. I mean, just take a look at those images. The sheriff telling our affiliate that uh, it's about 11 feet long. The, the, the worst nightmare for so many people uh, that, that deal with or that live near alligators here in Florida. A very common thing. But Fish and Wildlife will be quick to remind you that these type of incidents are rare. It is terrifying looking at that video with those two people sitting on top of this 11 yeah foot gator and having yeah. been a Floridian uh, for, for uh, in my, yes. my childhood years, um, we used to learn, the first thing we learned uh, when it comes to the water yeah. and to be safe was to run in a zigzag pattern if a gator ever chased huh. you. They still teaching that around there, Layla? Yeah. See, there you uh, are. I've, I've heard that recently, I'll say that. <laughs> but you know, look, I, 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 I I looked up the statistics on this. 1.3 million alligators across the 67 counties, according to wow. Fish and Wildlife. So yes, if you are a resident here in Florida, chances are at some point you are going to see an alligator, which yep. is why Fish and Wildlife are constantly putting out those reminders of the safety measures, right? Don't feed the alligators. Make sure to keep your distance. Don't get those pets near the water where, where you know, you often see those signs that have the alligator with the cross out, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a pretty common thing in Florida, and they don't uh, relocate uh, the these alligators that are deemed a nuisance because oftentimes, according to Fish and Wildlife, they will try to return to that capture site, Sarah and Every Poppy. Every time, um, it is terrifying, though, the thought that a woman has lost her life yes. yeah, um, just for walking her dog uh, mm. near a pond. Layla, thank you so much. Kaylin? Okay. We're here in Warsaw tracking President Biden as he is meeting behind closed doors with Polish President Duda. All of this is coming as the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is now blasting President Putin for what he said just hours ago when he said Russia will suspend cooperation with that nuclear arms treaty. We have much more of our special coverage live here from Warsaw. That's next. market could see mortgage rates go higher after they rose last week. We're looking at 3.2% on average. A typical single-family homeowner pays $720 more a month for a mortgage compared to a year ago. With us now, our chief business correspondent, Christy Romans. Ah! It's so much more. 6.3%. And when you look, it's doubled over the past year. And to put it in perspective, $720 more. So a mortgage you would have got for a typical family home last year. This year, you buy that same home, same price. It'd be $720 more a month because of interest. Of so money. the typical payment, $1,900 instead of $1,200. Wow. Um, so what we're watching here are mortgage rates really tied to inflation expectations. And we've seen how strong the economy is recently, right? And so now wondering if the Fed's going to have to continue to raise interest rates and then that's going to mean mortgage rates will stay closer to 6.5%, certainly, than below 6%. So 
That's where we are. A lot of people have a 3% mortgage and they don't want yeah. to move. That could put the ice on the housing market. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. My husband found a 1.9. Wow. No, I, it, when? Crazy. 2021. Okay, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Um, that was the heyday. That was the heyday. was the heyday. Now we're normalizing. But here's the thing. This is still historically low, correct? I mean, I remember yeah. my grandparents. Yeah. It was like 20%. Yeah. Me too. My parents right? were like 12, it's like 20%. Percent. It's crazy. Um, are there any places where prices are actually falling, though? So, so far, you still have prices rising, although at a slower pace. So 4% in the fourth quarter was the typical increase in home prices. But we did find some places where prices are falling. And these are in the red-hot markets these are markets that like were up 20% year after year after year. So San Francisco fell a little bit. Um, San Jose fell, Los Angeles, uh, Anaheim, but just a little bit for some of these markets. But at least that is something because people have been priced out. Affordability is a big problem. All of those places there, affordability is a big problem. You can't be a typical two-income family and, and afford to buy something over the past few years in some of these places. So you're starting to see the air come out of the bubble in, in towns like those. Yeah, but down just that much is not, I mean, no. you know, a million dollars for two bedrooms is it's outrageous. Yeah. Um, Christine Romans. Yes, it is. Thank you. You're <laughs> Thank welcome. you so much. And any minute now, we could be hearing from President Biden after his meeting with the Polish president. And later today, he will be delivering a speech to mark one year since Russia invaded Ukraine. Coming up, we will ask State Department spokesman Ned Price what to expect in Biden's speech. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're with us. I'm Poppy Harlow in New York. Sarah Seidner is with me here again. Thank you for being with us. Uh, Don will be back tomorrow. Caitlin is live anchoring in Poland. Good morning, Caitlin. Hi, we've had a lot of pierogies the last few days that we've been here. We are here in Warsaw. President Biden has finally arrived. He made that surprise trip to Kiev. Of course, look, there, here they are in the room. We'll see if President Biden and President Duda make any comments. This is the second meeting between these two leaders in 11 months. President Biden was here right after Russia invaded Ukraine. He gave a very forceful speech. He's expected to do so again today. President Duda turning into a surprising ally for President Biden as they smile before the cameras here. They are meeting inside the presidential palace in Warsaw after just meeting behind closed doors. No questions answered, it appears there. We'll continue to track that to see what President Biden is weighing in on. He has a lot of news to talk about. Obviously, we saw President Putin giving a speech earlier today where he said Russia is going to suspend its cooperation in a nuclear arms agreement. That is quite notable. We're hearing Secretary of State Antony Blinken blast that, saying it is an irresponsible decision, he believes. It's not Russia fully formally pulling out of the agreement yet, but it remains to be seen what that looks like. Poppy and Sarah, obviously big questions for, you know, what President Biden is going to say when he has the world stage in just a matter of hours from now. It's a great point. Let's bring in uh, to talk about that and a lot more. Clarissa Ward joins us live again this morning in Kiev, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bill Taylor, and retired Major General James Spider Marks. And uh, General, let me just begin with you where Caitlin left off, and that is on New START, the agreement, right, uh, between the United States, Russia, et cetera, that was supposed to expire in 2026. The fact that Russia is saying now it will not uh, go along anymore with any inspections on a full withdrawal 
But the significance of that and the fact that Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, just said it is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. But also, I should note, Spider said the U.S. will talk to Russia about this at any point, regardless of what's happening uh, on the world stage with Russia and Ukraine. That is how critical the U.S. believes this is. Oh, it's absolutely critical. Look, the, the only way that the nuclear threat is going to cool down in any way is if you look at past history where the United States and formerly the Soviet Union agreed to have their SALT talks, to have the START talks, and then to continue with the new START talks that we see right now. Look, that competition has been in place for over four to five decades, and it must be addressed. Look, one nuclear weapon alone is sufficient to give us all concern, right? What we're talking about is, is Russia has in excess of 5,000 nuclear weapons. And the United States on this graphic right here has about 5,000 as well. China, we need to keep in mind, is increasing their nuclear stockpile. So the discussion about nukes has to take place very broadly. It needs to be very serious and it needs to be isolated and not tied to any other conflicts or challenges that exist, i.e., the problem in Ukraine is that Russia had this war of conquest and they're not giving any indication that they're gonna leave. That needs to be dis addressed, but separately from the discussion in terms of strategic <coughs> nuclear drawdown. Mm -hmm. That Major must General? take place. Major yeah. General, I can't help but ask this because I've been, it's been annoying me. Um, you know, there was talk of giving F-16s to uh, the Ukrainians from the United States. How long does it take to train for those? Like, do you, can you give us some sense of how long it would take if those actually ended up in the country for um, their Air Force, their version of the Air Force, to, um, to train and to, to be competent on them? Well, you just don't fly an F-16. You fight an F-16 in concert with ground activity, ground maneuver, intelligence, um, air engagements, et cetera. So it's not just flying an aircraft, it's fighting that aircraft effectively. This is a year long, minimal year long type of training wow. environment. But what you wanna have, look, the Ukrainian Air Force has some competency in a cockpit like that. So you can get them up to the ability to fly the thing, but then you have to put them through some training so that they can fight it. So that's a distinction with a difference. Major General Marks, that, that is, is eye-opening. Right? Yeah. I didn't realize yeah. it was that long. Wow, that's incredible. Caitlin? And that's why we've heard from the Ukrainian foreign minister saying, start training the Ukrainians on them now. So then if you do ultimately decide that they're already trained, Clarissa Ward, you're live on the ground in Kiev. You were there as President Biden was there. We're, we're even seeing signs here today saying send the F-16 to Ukraine now. A clear message to President Biden. I wonder what Ukrainians are making, not only of what President Biden might say today, but also what President Putin said this morning. I think it's been interesting to see, you know, obviously there was a hugely positive reaction to President Biden's visit here yesterday. People will be watching to see uh, what might be said in Warsaw today, particularly after we heard from Andrei Yermak, the chief of staff of the office of the presidency. He alluded to the fact that potentially there could be some movement on some of these stickier issues. He talked about issues being resolved, things that were stuck being sped up. Not 
not clear uh, if he's referring specifically to any of the heavier weaponry that we've been talking about, whether that's fighter jets, whether that's long range artillery or missiles. But that's certainly what people here will be looking out for. In terms of President Putin's speech, I think it really just affirmed for people or reaffirmed, I should say, the alternate reality that President Putin is living in, the idea that Ukraine's government is somehow responsible uh, for the misfortunes of this country, that they're responsible for uh, the plummeting economic situation, that they're acting in the best interests of the West and not their own people. These are all the types of, uh, of sort of categorizations that most people find preposterous. And we actually heard uh, from Mikhailo Padulyak, who was a senior advisor to the presidency, who said Putin demonstrated, quote, irrelevance and confusion because everywhere there are Nazis, Martians and conspiracy theories. Mm essentially really laying the groundwork for the broader idea here, which is how on earth could we be expected to sit down and try to hash out some kind of a political solution when the Russian president is talking in these terms and clearly is living in a different universe to what people here are seeing and experiencing on the ground every day. Ambassador Taylor, as we are just a few hours away from President Biden speaking, we know that from the White House, this won't be a direct rebuttal to Putin, but Putin did sort of set the stage for, for, for this. How, how do you think his remarks are impacted by the, the reality that the Secretary of State is very concerned about China possibly su supplying lethal aid to Russia, and now Russia this morning saying it won't comply uh, with New START inspections? So probably it just demonstrates the problems that we have with the Russians. The Russians have not been cooperative about anything. Indeed, they've been clearly responsible for this invasion. There's no reason, uh, there was no reason for the, for the Russians to invade. It was uh, totally unprovoked. And so they have now indicated that they're not going to cooperate on New START. Um, as Spider-Mark says, this is a, this is a problem uh, that can be addressed. We tried to address it. The Americans tried to address it with the Russians, and they pulled out of the, of the conversation. They, they would not in, uh, engage in this kind of conversation. So it's clearly the Russians' uh, issue. Back on the issue about the F-16, just one thing mm -hmm. on that. That is a, that's a, that's a long term, as, as Spidermarks just indicated. That's going to take a year. There are two issues here. One is how to enable the Ukrainians to win on the battlefield right now in the next couple of months. Um, and that won't be with F-16s. Um, that will be with the kinds of weapons that are already there. And, that, and, and it will include some of the European tanks, the Leopards. That's the immediate fight, and that which they can which they can win. The longer term fight is where the F-16s and other weapons will come in. That's where Ukraine needs to be able to deter and defend uh, against another Russian attack. So there are two different time frames here. F-16s are in the longer term mm -hmm. time frame. And Caitlin, it wasn't just as you pointed out, the Ukrainian foreign minister saying let's train them now. It was also U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham echoing some others in the U.S. You know, Congress who have said, train them now. Yeah, but Wolf asked John Kirby about this last night. He yeah. said, right now, no plans to train them on, on that. I want to bring in Christian Amidpour, who's here with us. You're listening to Ambassador mm -hmm. Bill Taylor. And what do you make of what they have said about the F-16s? Well, look, I think 
certainly having come from the Munich Security Conference and, in, and interviewing a lot of people there who are in the decision-making process, that might come, as we've said, in sort of a, a way, everything that Ukraine has asked for a year has been no, 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 yes, everything, from long-range artillery to anti-aircraft systems to, you know, high Mars and tanks, and who knows, perhaps they will eventually get the planes, as uh, Ambassador Taylor, they said they might not need them right now, but. But the most important thing is that the Ukrainians need the ammunition to go with the weapon systems that they have right now. This is the most important and crucial thing that, that, is, that is sort of not flying under the radar because the Europeans and NATO are trying to address this. But the production capacity in NATO is not as fast as they would like right now. They need shells and ammunitions for all the systems that they have, and that's for the current battle underway. Having said that, we do not, and nor have these experts yet seen, a sort of a sort of special evidence of any kind of new and different so-called Russian spring offensive. It just hasn't materialized yet. And is the idea that even if they do launch that and it does materialize, that it could be successful? I mean, we, we kind of talk about it like it's guaranteed that it will, but it, it's not really. Well, look, the question is, and, and all the military experts will answer this better than I do, have Russia, has the military there figured out how to fix everything that we've seen that's gone wrong on their battlefield over the last year. We don't know that. But what we do know, and this is frantically important, is that what they might lack in quality, they make up for in quantity. Mm -hmm. In other words, the number of people that they are ready to shove at this in human waves because they do not care about the loss of their own lives, much less the loss of Ukrainian lives. So they do have an advantage in people. And Putin had that moment of silence in his very lengthy speech this morning for the Russian soldiers that they lost. What did you make of his, his speech this morning? Well, I was actually, you know, kind of interested that he did not lay out a battle plan for this next few weeks and months. It was all the stuff that we've heard in the past, the, 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 the narrative of the Russians that portrays them as the victims, them as the saviors, Ukrainians as the, you know, as the evil monsters, the Nazis. Again, again, he said that. Um, of course, he had to address with a moment of silence and other things that he said, you know, con congratulating their heroes, he kept saying, because the mothers, the sisters and brothers, the fathers of all these people who are being thrown at this battle like into a meat grinder... He wants to make sure that it doesn't come to a head where, whereby they come out of their homes and start to protest. Because that could happen. That's what happened at the end of the you know, Afghan occupation in 1989. It was the parents who came out and said, enough already. Our children are, you know, are, are dying for nothing. So I think that's, that's really important. Yeah, trying to keep popular opinion. Yeah. He talked about giving soldiers vacation days, talking about having yeah. those two weeks once a year. He, he's used these speeches to, A, announce the special military operation, as he called it, to announce the conscription. Are you surprised there wasn't an announcement like that beyond the suspension? Not really, because, again, he knows how domestically tricky that is. He might do it, but maybe that was not the speech where, whereby he was going to announce it. What I found interesting was that he addressed sort of obliquely 
the problems with the Russian military, saying that in the next five years, how about right now, we've got to figure out how to get our military better than it is, essentially, he was saying. We have to modernize, we have to do, you know, all these things that he was saying, clearly knowing, especially through the Russian military bloggers on the ground, knowing that there's been a huge amount of criticism of the Ministry of Defense and the Russian military operation, a huge amount of criticism, not, not about the war, but about the way it's being prosecuted by, by the Russians. So he had to do that. And then, of course, he did fling a few salvos at the utter corruption that we've seen, talking about, you know, people in their yachts and, you know, f- fleeing and, 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 you know, you know, having a good time with all their, quote unquote, ill-gotten gains abroad. Yeah, he had a pretty clear audience in mind. And Sarah, probably, you know, we were listening to that speech. He also was talking about how resilient the Russian economy is. Uh, that's something that's actually been, it's more resilient than, than you've heard from some people in the West, I think, than what they were surprised by. Well, yes, but in the long term, the West, and again, as this was said at Munich, um, you know, that's because of the price of gas. But as you can mm-hmm. see, that's already going down. And Russia has been cut off from the international, you know, a lot of the international financial system. And they are also having problems getting, uh, getting, getting spare parts, getting, yeah. you know, all the high tech that they need. That's why the West is legitimately worried about any move by China, whose foreign minister is going there today, it's probably there, um, to send any kind of lethal weaponry. I'm told that as yet they have seen no evidence that that has started, but they are, the West mm. is really, you know, the EU and the United States really trying to convince China that it would not be in anybody's best interest. And I think President Biden's trip to Kyiv was a monument of courage and timeliness and not just a symbol but an absolute declaration that we, as leaders of the free world, are here to support you in your fight. That was a really important visit. Yeah, it was, a mo- it was such a moment for yeah. his presidency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something that'll well, be not remembered. for his presidency, for, for the, the prosecution of this war and for what it says in the battle of democracy against autocracy. Yeah, and that's a theme, I think, Sarah and Poppy, that we will also hear when President Biden is speaking just a few hours from now. Caitlin, I love to see you and Christian there. Please give Christian my best. I bow down to that woman. She has been an inspiration my whole life. We all life. do. <laughs> all right, everybody, please stand by. There's a lot more to come there. First, we're going to go to Fred, though. Uh, and whether or not he's hearing any reaction, look, we haven't heard Biden actually say anything yet. Uh, but there is a speech coming, and certainly we've heard uh, quite a bit from the, from the Kremlin already. Mm. Yeah, we certainly, first of all, I agree with everything that Christian says, obviously, just like you guys probably do. Um, and then uh, second of all, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, a lot of strong words from Vladimir Putin today. But I think really the key thing that he was trying to do is he was trying to point out from the Russian perspective, the sort of inevitability of the war that is now going on in Ukraine. And also, of course, trying to frame this as a conflict between Russia and the West, specifically Russia and the leader of the West, Russia and the United States. I want to listen into a little more of Putin, what Putin had to say. The elite of the West uh, does not conceal their ambitions, which is to strategically defeat Russia. What does that mean? It means to finish us off once and for all and to make local They do that by making local uh, conflicts into much wider and bigger ones. 
So you have Vladimir Putin saying he believes that all this is essentially a conspiracy by the West against Russia, that they had to take action. That was something uh, that, he, that he specifically said. He also, you know, sort of tried to say that the authorities in Kiev are not legitimate, saying he believes that they're alien to the actual people in Ukraine. And, you know, some of that might sound awkward to people internationally, but there are a lot of folks here in Russia who actually believe that. And I think it's important for our viewers uh, to understand that we've actually spoken to top Russian pollster here. And he said, 80% of the people in Russia support Vladimir Putin, and a large part of the people also at least are not negative to the special military operation, obviously meaning the war in Ukraine. So certainly, you know, some of the things that we hear from Vladimir Putin, a lot of folks are buying them here in Russia, and that's obviously very important to know, especially when we look at the way things are going to move forward. Obviously, the Russians are saying they are in it for the long run and certainly not willing to back down, guys. Fred Plankton in Moscow. Thank you, Fred. We'll get back to you soon. Caitlin, let's go back to you with Christian. Well, we were just talking about also the idea that, you know, President Biden is meeting behind closed doors with President Duda. We're going to see them any moment now. We'll see if they offer any comments. You know, this is their second meeting in less than a year. It's pretty remarkable to to see how that relationship has has changed and how Poland is viewed. Well, well it, it is. But of course, Poland is right on the coalface of this conflict. You know, it's on the border. And what's happened over this last uh, 12 months is that these East European states, plus the Baltic states, um, other former Warsaw Pact states have come into their own. Now they are the ones who are pushing the West and the United States to do as much as they can. Why? Because they're the ones who are going to be rolled over next. I mean, nobody really thinks that's going to happen anymore, but it was a possibility at the beginning. But with Putin having bitten off apparently more than he can chew right now, it's unlikely that he's going to try. But but he might, you know, so they're worried about that. Having said that, of course, the United States has proved that no matter how much it gets from East Europe now, it is the West that is the strongest, that has the most power, that is still in charge of this transatlantic security architecture. Yeah, and to see how Poland has boosted its defense spending, also yep. just alone, and what they're buying from South Korea. We're getting live images also this morning, just uh, moments from now, President Biden, President Duda meeting inside the presidential palace there. You can see the two delegations. This is an expanded bilateral meeting between the two of them. That means both of their top advisors will be accompanying them in this meeting. As the White House has talked about what this relationship has looked like. Listen in. On behalf of myself and the entire Polish delegation, but also on behalf of the entire Polish society and all those present in our country, all the guests, all our friends and neighbors from Ukraine, I would like to thank you for yesterday's visit to Kiev. It was spectacular indeed, a very strategic and a very political move, very crucial indeed. That was a political signal. Especially for Ukraine, of course, uh, to a large extent, it has boosted the morale, I'm convinced about that, the morale of the defenders of Ukraine and all those who today decide about the defense of Ukraine, like my friend President Zelensky and his team. But that was also an extraordinary gesture shown to our allies within NATO and generally people standing on the side of the free world and the entire global public opinion. Also, it was a signal to those who violate international rules, who invaded a sovereign and independent state, that is Ukraine, who are 
bombing houses uh, who are destroying the infrastructure which is used by people for their everyday lives. I'm thinking here, unfortunately, about our European neighbors. I'm thinking about Russia. I'm thinking about Russian authorities, about President Putin, who almost one year ago decided to attack a free, independent and sovereign country on a full scale. He carried out that full scale attack because the first attack against Ukraine was carried out in 2014, as a matter of fact. However, after eight years, Vladimir Putin decided to attack Ukraine on a full scale, causing a tragedy and a catastrophe for millions of the inhabitants of Ukraine and causing a huge crisis, both a crisis of security and economic crisis all over the world, and also a humanitarian crisis. And thus, uh, he doomed millions of people to tragic fate. Those people had to flee from their country, uh, from bombs, from murders, from rapes, um, from murders, from horrible, uh, brutal and bestial treatment from Russian soldiers, unfortunately. So, having said that, thank you once again for your visit yesterday, Mr. President, because that was a significant sign for all those people, the sign that a free world has not forgotten them, that a free world and its biggest leader, the President of the United States, stands by them. So, I know that perfectly well, Mr. President. Uh, I know how big courage it requires. Thank you very much for that. I can imagine it was not easy, especially for all those who are responsible for your security, sir. So, please, pass my gratitude attitude to them from me. They are standing somewhere in the background, but still that was a hard work that they were doing. So thank you, Mr. President, for that decision. We are delighted to host you in Poland. This is also a crucially important sign to us, a sign of security. Tomorrow we will meet with our allies from the eastern flank of NATO, because to all of us this visit is crucially important. It is a symbolic visit here to our region. We are seeing it not only as a visit paid here in Poland, it is a visit to our region combined with a visit to Kiev. It sends a very powerful message of responsibility, which the United States of America carries constantly the responsibility for the security of Europe and the world. The United States, which has demonstrated on multiple occasions its responsibility for European matters during the First World War, during the Second World War, during the Cold War, every single time uh, they restored the democratic rules. Every time the United States uh, brought back freedom, people were able to restore their freedom, sometimes after tens of years, as it was the case in Poland. Poland in 1989. Thanks to the movement of solidarity, of course, here in Poland, thanks to the determination of the people, thanks to the influence exerted by St. John Paul II, whom we admire so much, but we know perfectly well this was brought about thanks to a very decisive American policy conducted by the U.S. authorities, by President Ronald Reagan. And at last, the evil empire collapsed. The Berlin Wall collapsed um, as a result, and we regained our freedom. So all of us were looking at what you did yesterday, and we believe that America is able to maintain the global order, uh, to guard the global order, and to show all the aggressors who want to destroy other people's lives, who want to take control of other countries, who want to enslave other nations, 
it shows that there is no acceptance of the democratic community represented by the United States of America to such behavior, to such acts. Thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. As I said, it sends a very important signal to us, to us, the Polish people, your presence, Mr. President, is extremely important from the perspective of the security. We are delighted that you will give your speech, Mr. President, here in Poland. We are delighted that this message will be sent from here of you, sir, a message addressed to the whole world, because I'm sure that the whole world is going to follow your speech. Thank you for this decision. We are very glad with it. On the one hand, it proves how it is important for the United States, how our part of Europe is important to the United States from the Allied perspective, but also to us, it is to a certain extent a confirmation that we are doing the right thing. The actions which we have been uh, taking recently vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine by supporting Ukraine, by sending weapons to Ukraine, by helping Ukrainians, by supporting them in all different ways. Uh, it is a proof that this is the right path. Uh, it is a proof that we are supported in this respect by the United States. We also try to give the support to our neighbors, and we are trying to be not only the ones who are who have got the security guaranteed by the United States and NATO, but we try to be the ones who are providing the security to other states, to the Baltic states, where we are part of the air policing mission. We are providing the security to our allies from Romania, where Polish soldiers are deployed as part of NATO contingent. Um, in Latvia, our soldiers are stationed there as well, and our tanks also are guarding the security of Latvia. So simply said, we are trying to demonstrate allied solidarity. Having said that, I'm even more grateful, Mr. President. Thank you for paying this visit here in Poland, because I believe that the Polish people see it also as an appreciation of the contribution that we have made in the construction of the security in our part of Europe. And we are delighted to be able to host you here today, Mr. President. This also is a powerful signal to the global and American investors. Your presence, uh, sir, your speech, sir, uh, it proves that Poland is safe and secure. It is a country where you can safely come from the other side of the globe. These distances do not seem to be that much. Some people might think that this is a dangerous place, but Poland is safe and secure thanks to the presence of the U.S. armed forces thanks to the presence of NATO troops, and also thanks to our efforts to reinforce Poland's security, uh, Poland's defense capabilities. Uh, we are implementing all of that, and we're happy, Mr. President, that your presence here is a visible sign of this presence. Recently, we uh, were talking, speaking to our allies in Europe. I did it during my meetings, which I had in London and also at the Munich Security Conference. I was saying that this, these developments and this unique role uh, which is being played through you, sir, by the United States uh, shows in a very clear way that a transatlantic bond is of key importance to Europe. We are here together with the Polish Prime Minister attending this meeting. Uh, the Polish Prime Minister, who is the head of the government, and by this function he has in his hands the responsibility for the parliamentary majority today. In 2025, uh, Poland will take over the 
presidency in the European Union. So we want and we will pass a special resolution in May this year. We would like that this resolution marks uh, the anniversary of our presence in the European Union. We would like our presidency uh, to be conducted under the motto of tightening transatlantic bond, want more America and Europe, a stronger bonds between the European Union and the United States, more cooperation between the European Union and the United States in, in economic matters, in security-related matters, all which is so important to us. This difficult time which we are experiencing in Europe right, right now and this extraordinary role played by the United States is an absolute demonstration of the fact that this is of key importance to the security and to the future development of our continent. So we in Poland have made a lot of experiences over the last centuries in our history, and especially over the last 100 years in our history, have no doubt about that. So, Mr. President, once again, we are delighted and a warm welcome to you, sir. Welcome. And uh, any excuse to come back to Poland, I take advantage of. The welcome has always been extremely generous, and, uh, and I appreciate it. And uh, so thank you for inviting me back to Warsaw at this critical moment. You know, uh, you mentioned John Paul. I think I told you the story. When I was a young senator, I wrote a report and I uh, had a very senior staff member on the Foreign Relations Committee who was, uh, and that was a committee, the next youngest person on that committee was uh, 32 years older than me. And I came back from Europe and I wrote a report saying that Poland would be free within a matter of a year. And my chief of staff then said, please don't write that because you're going to look foolish. And I got a phone call from John Paul asking whether I'd meet with him. And uh, as a practicing Catholic, I joked with him that he was more conservative than my views were and uh, went to see him. And we finished the conversation and it was all about Poland. He never once mentioned anything about Catholicism. It's a true story. And we're walking from one end, if you've been to the Papal Library, it's about as wide and as long as this room with a simple desk at one end and nothing much else. In it. And uh, as we, he said, would you like a photograph? And I said, sure, your holiness, I'd, I'd, I'd like one. And we're walking from the desk to the other end, we're having a photograph, and he put his hand on my arm and he said, Senator, remember today I spoke to you as a Pole, a proud Pole, not as your Pope, as a Pole. <laughs> so I realized the power of Poland all across the board. Look, uh, all kidding aside, I, that happens to be a true story, but, uh, you know, I was here last year and we visited uh, the base where Polish and American troops were and uh, standing side by side, showing our strength and determination. The truth of the matter is, the United States needs Poland and NATO as much as NATO needs the United States because there is no way in which for our ability to operate anywhere else in the world and our responsibilities extend beyond Europe, it, we have to have a security in Europe. It's that basic, that simple, that consequential. So it's the single most consequential alliance, I would argue, maybe the most consequential alliance in history, that not just modern history, but in history. and. Uh, and so I made it clear uh, that the comments of the United States and our allies as partner of the commitment is real. And that uh, a year later, I would argue NATO is stronger than it's ever been. I, uh, 
Well, as I told President Zelensky when we spoke in uh, Kiev yesterday, uh, I can proudly say that our support for Ukraine remains unwavering. And as I told uh, my Russian counterpart, not well, it's a while now, I said, you're seeking the, uh, the, um, the Finlandization of NATO. You're going to get the NATOization of Finland. And uh, it turns out I didn't know Sweden was coming along as well. <laughs> But all kidding aside, I think we're in a, if we uh, keep our head and we are focused, I think we're in a better position than we've ever been. And I want to thank you, President, uh, for uh, how Poland has supported Ukraine. It's been extraordinary, Mr. Prime Minister and Mr. President, what you've done. Truly extraordinary. Last year when I was here watching people come across the border and the feeling that those little children, the looks on their faces, those mothers who are left behind, husbands and fathers. Uh, it was just incredible the way you've welcomed. Right? What is it? 1.6, 1.7 million uh, Ukrainians you've welcomed. And, uh, you know, we, uh, and we reaffirmed our, our ironclad commitment to NATO's collective security, including guaranteeing that uh, the uh, command headquarters for, uh, for our forces in Europe are, are going to be in Poland, period. Um, and, uh, we're also launching a new strategic partnership with plans to build nuclear power plants and bolster Poland's energy security for generations to come. And, Mr. President, the connection between Polish and, 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 Polish and American people is extremely strong and deep. I was kidding with the President. I was, uh, as a young man, I was uh, born in a coal town of Scranton, Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania, in an Irish Catholic neighborhood. Then when coal died, we moved down to Delaware, to a town called Claymont, Delaware, which was a working class town. And, uh, but everybody in town was either Polish or Italian. I grew up feeling self-conscious. My name didn't end in an SKI or an O. Uh, but all kidding aside, the connection between, I was telling the, the president, the pride the overwhelming, demonstrable pride that the Polish Americans feel about Poland and the role you're playing now. We were talking about it. It's extreme. Yeah. It is. It, uh, it is. Uh, you would be, if you haven't seen it, you should come and see it. And uh, and so there's a lot of challenges that we have to face. But I'm confident we can do it together. And. Uh, develop our partnership even further as we meet the challenges we're about to face. I'm absolutely confident in that. So it's a delight to be back, and I'm anxious to get our discussion going, although the President and I solved all the problems in the other room a moment ago. There's nothing left to solve, but all kidding aside, this is a critical, 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 critical relationship for the United States, and we thank you for all the cooperation and help. Biden is answering questions there from reporters as he was having really a fascinating exchange with Polish President Duda, not necessarily something you thought you would see even two years ago, speaking to the way that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed this. President Duda heaping praise on President Biden in the United States, invoking World War I, 
World War II, the Cold War, to put this conflict right now that's happening, this war in Ukraine, into perspective and saying he believed America would be able to help and was critical to maintaining the global order. Quite a moment there. We'll continue to monitor this meeting between President Biden and President Duda. We're also going to hear from the State Department spokesman Ned Price after Putin said earlier today they were suspending Russia's cooperation in a key nuclear arms treaty. We'll be right back. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Back now as President Biden meets with Polish President Duda following Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine to Kyiv yesterday and Russian President Vladimir Putin's speech doubling down on Russia's invasion into Ukraine. Moments ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken responded to Putin's speech saying Russia's decision to suspend participation in inspections as part of the New START treaty is, quote, deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Joining us now is State Department spokesman Ned Price. Ned, good morning. Thanks for waiting for us to get through the two presidents there. We appreciate it. Um, and let's, Happy to do it. Let's start on what Vladimir Putin is saying, because um, the Secretary of State's response is that's really unfortunate. But in his response, Secretary Blinken also said essentially, however, we will talk to Russia about this at any time regardless of what's happening on the world stage, regardless of the invasion of Ukraine, indicating how important it is to maintain this. What does that mean? What do you expect to see happen here? Well, as the secretary said, it's unfortunate, but even more importantly, it's irresponsible. And it's irresponsible because as nuclear powers, we have a responsibility to our own people, but also to people around the world uh, to engage in strategic stability, to engage in arms control talks, to engage in precisely the practices that since the dawn of the nuclear age uh, prevented a nuclear exchange between uh, nuclear powers. Uh, the fact that Russia is stepping back uh, from this deal, it's, it's irresponsible. We've seen irresponsibility in this realm uh, over the past year uh, from the Russians, but we'll have to see about the practical impact. Uh, and it's unclear if there will be any practical impact. And I say that uh, because earlier this year, we deemed uh, publicly that mm -hmm. Russia was in Not technical noncompliance. Exactly. Technical noncompliance with the New START uh, treaty, because Russia has uh, for some time refused uh, to meet with us to this uh, on this. We're going to watch very carefully uh, to see what, if any steps, practical steps Russia actually takes. We haven't seen any reason to change our nuclear posture, our strategic posture just yet. Uh, but this is something we, we monitor every day. And to the secretary's point, look, uh, we have proved time and again in, in different fora and realms that even in times of tension, even in times of extreme tension mm -hmm. uh, with a country like Russia, we're ready, willing and able to do what's responsible for our own people, uh, but also for people uh, around the world. Strategic stability is one of those. We've been calling on Russia for some time to meet with us uh, so we can conduct these inspections, so we can uh, ensure that Russia is in compliance, uh, but we'll have to see what Russia chooses to do next. Ned, just given the fact that the U.S. had deemed recently that Russia was not in compliance with New START, is it the State Department's position, the administration's position, that this uh, announcement by Putin today makes the world more dangerous or not? Well, it's an unfortunate uh, proclamation from President Putin. It certainly doesn't help global stability, but we'll have to see what, if any, steps he takes next. If it's just a proclamation, if it's just for propaganda purposes, if it was just because he wanted a soundbite or a newsbite uh, out of what was otherwise uh, a pretty empty state of the nation address, 90 minutes that he gave to his own people, uh, that's one thing. If Russia decides to take steps to actually uh, move in the direction, to actually uh, take steps that, that heighten the 
the irresponsibility that we've seen from the Russian Federation over the course of the last year with nuclear saber rattling, nuclear bluster, uh, potential threats. Uh, that's very much another. I have a quick question for you. Um, I know that there were there was communication um, between uh, the Biden administration and Putin or at least his folks, uh, saying that they're going into Ukraine. Can you give us some sense of how that happened? I'm curious how that happened. And if you think it's still possible to have some kind of dialogue uh, with President Putin. Well, two points here. One is broader, one is more narrow. The broader point uh, is that we still do have lines of communication with the Russians. We believe in the necessity of maintaining lines of communication even when we're in a state of relations like we are now. Uh, we have an embassy in Moscow. The Russians have an embassy here. Secretary Blinken has demonstrated his willingness to pick up the phone to speak to his counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov. Uh, Secretary Austin at DOD, Chairman Milley uh, has done the same. Jake Sullivan uh, has done the same. We are acting responsibly. And part of what responsible powers do is maintain uh, the ability to communicate with one another. Now, the more narrow part of that, yes, uh, we did give the Russians notification that President Biden uh, would be transiting into Ukraine. We didn't want any miscalculation. We didn't want any mistake uh, on their part. It was really a, a notification. It, it wasn't a, a dialogue. You heard from the National Security Advisor. Uh, there wasn't much of an exchange. Uh, we told the Russians in a very matter-of-fact way that this would be happening. They acknowledged receipt. Uh, that was it. I, I want to quickly follow up with you. You, you said the word nuclear, um, which gives puts shivers down my spine when you consider the possibility um, of nuclear war in 2023 or beyond. Can you give me a sense of what kind of preparation happens if you do think that there is any possibility that uh, a nuclear arms, either race or nuclear arms, could be used in this conflict? Well, I don't want to get ahead of where we are. And uh, there have been times in, in the course of this conflict where we've had heightened concerns about what the Russians may be planning. Going back to what I said just a moment ago, we use those open channels of communication uh, to warn discreetly, but to warn uh, without any ambiguity or, or mistaking on their part. Uh, the consequences that would arise from any nuclear use. We did that. Countries around the world did that. Uh, we engaged from this building, from other buildings as well, uh, with partners, but also countries with whom we have uh, a sometimes uh, complicated, even adversarial relationship, uh, to encourage them to use the power of their voice privately, but also publicly, uh, with the Russians to reinforce the very simple message uh, that the use of nuclear weapons uh, would bring with it really unimaginable uh, consequences for uh, the Russians. Uh, let me go back to one other point that took place uh, e earlier last year. Uh, the Russians, even in the course of their buildup uh, in, uh, on the border along with Ukraine, uh, signed on to a statement at the UN Security Council that reaffirmed uh, a maxim that's been around since the Cold War, namely uh, that a nuclear war uh, must never be fought uh, and can never be won. That is something that we still believe in profoundly. It was something that the Russians uh, in recent months have reaffirmed themselves. We call on the Russians to make good uh, on that and to cease with this nuclear bluster, with this nuclear uh, saber rattling, uh, and to act responsibly, even as they engage in this brutal uh, war of aggression against the Ukrainian people. Ned Price, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ned. Thanks very much. Thanks. Caitlin. 
Yeah, notable to hear that. It's like really the first reaction beyond what Secretary Blinken said earlier about those remarks from President Putin. We're also going to hear from President Biden as he is set to deliver his own speech today at the Royal Palace Garden here in Warsaw. We're going to talk to the mayor of Warsaw about the impact that this invasion has had on his city and on Poland overall. That's next. President Biden set to speak there in just a few moments from now at the Royal Castle here in Warsaw, Poland. It's the same place he gave that impassioned plea last year, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refused to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. Joining us now is the mayor of Warsaw, Rafał Czeskowski, who is, what a moment you've been living through. You are the mayor of Warsaw. You've now had a presidential visit from the U.S. twice in less than a year. He didn't go to Berlin. He didn't go to London. He didn't go to Paris. What does it mean to you that he's here in Warsaw to give this speech? Well, it's incredible. Of course, the times are very difficult, but it's very important that the president of the United States is in Poland again, because it means that we are safe, you know, because with him, he brings those guarantees of security. And of course, it is immensely important for us that he was in Kiev, that he showed so much courage and that the United States of America is ready to help. And we heard from President Putin this morning giving that lengthy speech. Overall, it seemed to signal that he doesn't believe this war in Ukraine is anywhere close to being over. What was your takeaway? Well, unfortunately, uh, it seems that Putin wants to escalate, that he doesn't have a plan B. Uh, he miscalculated on, on so many different fronts. He thought that Ukrainians will not uh, defend their country. He thought that we could be divided, and he just was wrong on both of those counts. And one thing has been about what the West is sending to Ukraine. That was a major theme of his speech today. One point has been the F-16s. And the U.S. is saying they're not going to train Ukrainian fighter pilots on the F-16s yet. Do you think that's a mistake? Do you think they should do so in case they decide to send them? Well, it's complicated, but the most important thing is that every taboo has been broken because I remember these conversations a year ago and many people were saying we shouldn't be sending uh, heavy weapons, we shouldn't be sending tanks. And then it turned out that, uh, that uh, America and other European allies decided to uh, actually help Ukraine because Ukrainians are fighting for our security, so we need to help them as much as we can. And when you say our security, you, this war is on your doorstep. What does that feel like? Well, I mean, Poland is, is safe. I mean, you see Warsaw just behind me. Nothing changes. Of course, now today everything's blocked because of the presidential <laughs> visit. But but the life goes on. And thanks to President Biden and, and uh, the American administration, we feel safe. Thanks to ourselves as well. But thanks to the Ukrainians who are fighting for the stability of the transatlantic alliance. We're fighting for our values. I mean, you know, we talk about democracy, the rule of law all the time. These guys are actually given their lives for those values. And what you seem to be saying is that Instead of debating over sending certain weaponry, longer range missiles, planes to Ukraine, they should just go ahead and send it. We should be helping Ukraine as much as we can. And of course, the Americans uh, are doing it. Poles are doing it. But many of our friends in Western Europe were dragging their feet. So we better keep the pressure up because we need to be helping those guys. And of course, we here in Warsaw, we are helping the refugees. We are helping women and children. And that's why many Ukrainians, I've talked to them, you know, on numerous occasions, tell us, we can fight because you're doing, doing your bid. So you're informing, we're helping refugees. Others, other people are sending weapons because we all have a dog in this fight. Because every dictator, every crazy dictator in the world is watching whether the West can be united, whether we can be strong and whether we can deliver. 
We're a year into this war, and Poland saw the most refugees out of anyone. A lot of them came through Poland, went to other places, but many still live here, over a million in Poland. Hundreds of thousands still live in your city. What is the impact of that a year in? Well, it has been really amazing, this uh, this uh, show of solidarity, because, you know, you don't see any people on the street. You don't see uh, any camps for refugees because they're with us, with friends, with family, and so on and so forth. And I'm absolutely uh, certain that we will get enriched by all of that. There is a silver lining on that on that cloud, because, you know, Warsaw was one of the most diverse cities in between the wars. And, of course, after the Second World War, it was changed. Now we welcome these Ukrainians here for a while, maybe for longer and we feel enriched. And one thing we've seen Polish President Duda call for other officials here in Poland is a bigger American presence here, a more permanent presence here. Are there indications you think that that's actually going to happen? Well, we hope so. I mean, uh, there is uh, American presence uh, on the ground. And of course, uh, President Biden said that every inch of NATO territory will be defended. Uh, and it, first of all, makes us feel more secure, but it also sends a very strong signal to the Russians that they shouldn't move any further and that by the way, they should start moving out of Ukraine because the West will be together, will be strong. Next batch of sanctions are being prepared. So that's exactly the, the signal that we should be sending. And those are the words that I'm waiting for uh, that President Biden will deliver in a few hours. And how long do you think it could go on for? It's What's very, very difficult to say, but, but that's why we need to help the Ukrainians because they're bleeding every day. And as I've said, you know, this is also our war. Some people think this is a war somewhere in the East and so on and so forth. But this is a war for our values, for the stability of our institutions, for our com community. And as I've said, you know, everyone's watching whether we can deliver, whether we can be strong, because people thought the West will keep on deliberating and so on and so forth. Now, we showed that we can do it together and we should simply continue doing it. Mayor Cheskovsky, thank you so thank much you for joining much. us here. Thank you for hosting us in your city. Pleasure. We really Come appreciate to Warsaw. Your time. We really appreciate your time this morning, Poppy Sarah. We've now been to Warsaw twice in a year now, uh, but interesting perspective from a city that has really felt the impact of this invasion. Uh, Caitlin, thank you so much. Thank you for being there. It's really been um, quite remarkable um, and great to have you on the ground there as well. Yeah. Caitlin, your coverage has been extraordinary. We'll keep watching you through the day as we get ready for the president to speak in a few hours. And we will see you back here tomorrow. Sarah, thank you for being by my side. It's been my pleasure. I didn't like getting up that early. I know. But, but because you were here, <laughs> it made it all right. Thank you. Uh, and Don will be back with us tomorrow as well. Caitlin will join us live from Poland. CNN Newsroom is after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 